Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Kurt, great to see you. And hello to all of our listeners and viewers, and we're, we're really excited about our guest today. You look terrific there, Rich. The pandemic is treating you well. Uh, today, <laughs> we're very excited to welcome back onto the Tea Leaves Podcast a good friend and close colleague, Dr. Evan Medeiros. Evan is one of America's foremost experts on Asia, and in particular China, and also works as a senior advisor here at the Asia Group. Yeah, Evan, it's great you're back. Kurt and I have worked closely with you, obviously here at the Asia Group, but also when you served with distinction on the National Security Council under President Obama, where you served on the NSC for six years and also served as special assistant to the president and senior director for Asia serving as President Obama's top advisor on the region. We're really excited and thrilled to have you back. So Evan, welcome back. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, Kurt. Great to be here. Looking forward to today's conversation. I can't think of anything more topical than China and the U.S.-China relationship. So let me, I'll start us off, Evan, and then let Rich jump in. So we had you back on, you know, kind of almost a little over a year ago in 2019, Evan, you had a lot of prescient, interesting things to say, but as we reflected back on some of those conversations, literally the ground has shifted under the U.S.-China relationship, almost in a tectonic way. I know that's an overused metaphor, but probably apt in this set of circumstances. Set the scene for our watchers and listeners. What's happening in China and what's happening in U.S.-China relations, Evan? Well, Kurt, the, the way I think about the U.S.-China relationship, or the best framework for understanding what's going on right now, is sort of combining long-term trends and short-term trends, or what I like to call the cyclical and structural drivers of the relationship. And we're in one of these unique periods, unique in the 40-year history of the relationship, where both the cyclical or short-term drivers are pushing the relationship downward toward greater friction, tension, competition. And that's combining with a series of long-term structural drivers of competition in the relationship as well, which is just raising tensions. And I think it has really put the relationship not just on the trajectory of strategic competition, that's now sort of the term of art that everybody uses, but really a relationship that is drifting from strategic competition into strategic confrontation. But Evan, there's, there's no one who really knows the history of the bilateral relationship better than you do, you and Kurt. Have we been here before, or is, are we really in uncharted territory? Yeah, my view, I'd love to get Kurt's opinion, is that we're really approaching terra incognita largely because the U.S.-China relationship is changing. The fact that the competition between us is not just on economics and security issues. I mean, that's always been the case, but I think it's, it's getting broader on both economics and security. But we now have new sources of competition, uh, so ideology and technology. So the way I think about the U.S.-China relationship is for structural reasons, it is moving into broad-spectrum competition, security, technology, economics, and uh, even ideology. So the U.S.-China relationship is getting a lot more complex. And then you have a China that is one that's sort of somewhere between authoritarian and totalitarian with sort of shades of, and I know it sounds extreme, but sort of shades of fascism, right? The sort of Xi Jinping's appeal to revival and rebirth 
his embrace of uh, illiberalism, his appeal to sort of concepts of strength and stability as essential for governance, using technology and industry as that tool of rejuvenation, and then, of course, the personality cult under Xi Jinping, and this sort of ideological conformity that he's stressing, combined with this sort of you know, Han ethnocentrism, right? We simply can't ignore the fact that some, you know, million Uyghurs were put in uh, re-education concentration camps. We're now seeing efforts to, you know, bring about similar types of uh, policies in Inner Mongolia, where there's been protests in recent days. So I, I don't want to be extreme. You guys know me. I'm sort of not bombastic, not overly ideological in my orientation. But I mean, the nature of the regime, you know, is changing the way they think about the world, the way they see themselves, the policies that they're adopting. And I think all of that combined with just sort of the national interest calculation has put the U.S.-China relationship in a very different place. Evan, let me ask you this. You know, as you look at China now and you see what's happened over the course of the last eight years or so. So you and I had the benefit of meeting Vice President Xi before he had basically taken the reins to be the party secretary and the president. Uh, He was the guest of Vice President Biden, so we traveled around the United States with him. He was very opaque. You could tell he was a strong man on some some level, but I think, you know, we projected a lot of uh, hope on him. Maybe the Chinese people did as well. Do you think the standing committee and the elders and the folks that decide on the leadership of China really knew they were what they were? This is what, yep, this is what we voted for. This is what we got when they chose him many years ago. Or has he been in many respects different than sort of what the collective wisdom of the party was seeking? Kurt, I think it's the latter. I think he's been very different and very unexpected. I mean, like you, I have a sort of wide network of contacts in China. Admittedly, I haven't been to China in several months because of COVID. But, you know, people that I developed relationships with when I was serving at the NSC. And I think there was a lot of surprise in the government, uh, certainly in in academic circles in China, uh, even in the military about what kind of strongman Xi Jinping would be. And it wasn't just the fact that he consolidated power quickly and centralized decision-making, right? Those are sort of classic Maoist techniques. It wasn't just that. It was the degree to which he sort of injected ideology back into private life, you know, increasingly into economic life in China, the way he sort of sought to rejuvenate the Communist Party as the sort of central institution and mechanism for guiding all major decisions in China. And I think, I think all of that caught a lot of people off guard. And while I know some, you know, Chinese sort of were hoping that after the, after his first five-year term and the sort of scorched earth period of the anti-corruption campaign was over that some of this might moderate. Yeah. And it hasn't. Let me ask one last question and turn it back over to, to Rich, Evan. So one of the big debates in the China community right now 
is the extent and level to which President Xi has ultimate total control in China. Whether he is being challenged on the periphery, there's a you know an Australian analyst who believes that there is a backlash. There are a number of our colleagues and friends, people who have watched China a long time, that believe that there are lots of machinations that. There's a cosmopolitan group that is more critical of President Xi. I'm not a China expert like you are. I've worked on the region on China for decades, but my general sense is that if ever there was a leader that is relatively secure, it's him. But、uh, I'd be curious to hear your views. Yeah, it's a good question, Kurt, and it's a hard one to answer because it depends on sort of having constant access to information that we simply don't don't have access to. Sort of as as a longtime student of Chinese politics, you know, the political system by its nature is you know has factions. Though those factions have become far more complicated because of the sort of cross cutting. Connections, right? You know, people that have ties to Xi Jinping, but also have ties to the economic liberals from Shanghai, etc., etc. So there are, you know, there's certainly different groups within elite Chinese politics. But my instincts are where yours are, which is Xi Jinping has been so effective at consolidating power.、Uh, he has so effectively used the anti-corruption campaign to remove. Both people that were genuinely corrupt, as well as those that opposed him on policy and opposed his politics, he's very systematically replaced the top leaders of both the PLA and the internal security apparatus, and he's very effectively used and applied technology as a way to increase the coercive tools for the Communist Party to use to maintain social control. So sure, are there differing views? Absolutely. Is there frustration? Yes. Are there people that would like to take him down a notch? Undoubtedly. Are they likely to be able to do that? That looks like a very, very risky, costly, dangerous thing to do for anybody、uh, in that in that system right now. I mean, look, look. Just earlier this year, there's a very, very famous Chinese entrepreneur who、uh, challenged Xi Jinping. Challenged him a couple times. And is now, you know, under house arrest, right? A couple, you know, well-known Chinese scholars as well. So while there was some modicum of tolerance for that within Xi's first term after the last Party Congress, it's all over. And as we approach 2022, the next Party Congress, and we should talk about that, the calendar and how the calendar is going to affect the U.S.-China relationship. But as we approach 2022. I think we'll get even more indicators of sort of the tolerance for dissent, which is probably pretty low,、uh, and whether or not anybody's willing to take that kind of risk. And then, could you could you just say a little bit more about that? So, tell us, just look forward over the next two years. Why is this calendar so important? And and what kind of things should we be looking for in terms of whether there's greater room for dissent or not? Well, the way I think about it, Rich, is I, I think about the calendar more in terms of how to manage China's external behavior than its internal behavior. But but you'll you'll get what I mean when I give you the three big examples. So one of the things Kurt and I used to do, you know, when we when we were both in government and we really wanted to work on strategy, was you sort of sit down and you actually look at the calendar of meetings 
right, and interactions to determine where are their opportunities to generate leverage, extract gains, and just g- generally create benefit for the U.S. And so when I look at the U.S.-China relationship, the calendar really matters. So, for example, in July of next year of 2021, I believe it's in July, is going to be the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party, right? Huge, huge anniversary for them, the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. And so they're you know, going to be very, very preoccupied in preparing for that. They will make some big announcements at that event. And so the question is, to what extent does that provide, you know, some leverage? If they want relative stability in their external affairs so they can focus on party affairs and party building in anticipation of those events, does that provide some opportunity? Number two, in winter of 2022, uh, Beijing's going to be hosting the Winter Olympics, right? Huge opportunity, right? We all, we all remember how much time and effort the Chinese put into, you know, hosting the Olympics in 2008, right? So they're going to be hosting the Winter Olympics and hosting it for the first time. So of course, that will be another one of these periods in which the Chinese are going to want to avoid distractions. They don't want to, they probably don't want to create crises on their own. Uh, They're going to be very attentive to the risk of boycott. So that's, you know, another point in the future where there could be a source of leverage for the U.S. and other external actors. And then, of course, in uh, 2022 itself is, in the fall, is going to be the next party Congress. And the big issue on the agenda is, does she stay or go, right? Uh, I think that, you know, my bet is he's probably going to stay. And then the question is, who does he begin to bring into the leadership that offers us some signs of the next generation? But this staying or going question is really his decision, at least if the current conditions remain, right? I mean, the, the well, there th- are internal policy, there are internal party rules for voting and stuff. Uh, so I don't think it's entirely his. Uh, I think he does need to build coalitions of supporters, but he has so many tools, both incentives as well as disincentives and coercion at his disposal to you know, ensure that that party deliberations are to his benefit. Yeah. Can I just turn maybe to some of the external issues, the regional issues, the international institutions, global as well? Because that really, you know, that helps us understand how much of a concern and how much of a threat, let's say, that the Chinese are. So, Evan and Kurt, I really address this to to both of you. When you look at their activities in the region, for example, and I want to get to the uh, India-China border uh, standoff as well. Shots were fired there recently, which was totally unprecedented. But, you know, what are the regional objectives militarily and uh, politically? I mean, this is is an age-old question, Rich, uh, that we could debate forever. So I, I think Chinese ambitions in the region are growing simply because they see themselves as having a larger economy, a more capable military, and they want to explore the boundaries of what 
a larger economy and a more capable military mean for their diplomacy. So I think for them, it you know, begins with protecting territorial integrity and sovereignty in the Asia Pacific. I think they want to grow their political influence uh, in part because they want to ensure that they have consistent access to markets, investment in technology, which are critical to growth. I mean, growth and economic prosperity is still a core interest for the leadership. But I think more broadly than that, I think their you know, ambitions, especially under Xi, are to play a greater role in both regional governance as well as global governance. So having a say in how the rules, norms, and institutions in the region begin to evolve and evolve in ways more consistent with Chinese interests than Western interests or the U.S. interests. And, you know, that dovetails probably with the last major motivation, which is countering American containment, right? Or what they perceive to be American containment. And I think that 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 has only grown as a regional foreign policy motivation in recent years. Well, Kurt, I'll turn this over to you. In many ways, it feels like we've dealt them the perfect hand. We've, We've been walking away from international institutions. We've been weakening our alliances. We've been uh, kind of withdrawing from the scene just at a time when, Evan, what what you describe is that they actually want to play a more decisive role. I mean, we couldn't have have rolled out a a better red carpet for them. On top of that, Rich, has been a profound regional preoccupation away from Asia for the last 20 years. Um, So I completely agree that there's- Within the US, Kurt, right? I completely, there are contemporary issues along the lines that you're indicating, but the truth is, you know, we have a good position generally in Asia, but it takes investment. And we probably over almost 20 years have not invested enough in, in Asia to play the role that we want to play going forward. And the other critical piece of this calculation, Rich, is within the Asia Pacific, even among U.S. allies, the costs of countering China are going up. Right. I mean, the costs to your trade and investment, a country's trade and investment relationship, costs in terms of the risk of military conflict. And the Chinese are getting really good at highlighting those costs. Right. I mean, simply look what Australia has been going through in the past few weeks. All it took was the Prime Minister Morrison's suggestion that there be an international investigation of the origins of COVID. And and the Chinese just start hammering the Australians. We're now at the first point since 1972 that there's never been, there is no Australian journalist in China. Now, of course, that's not a balance of power type of issue, but that combined with this sort of succession of economic sanctions they've been levying against the Australians, right? I mean, it, it's the Chinese are, are just, not only do they have more tools at their disposal, they're much more willing to wield them. They're much more willing to tolerate risk and friction to sort of remind countries that there are costs to pay. And in that kind of environment, when, you know, at best the U.S. sort of looks distracted, it's very difficult. I mean, Kurt, you may disagree with me, but if you even look at Japanese behavior, and I, and I mentioned Japan because, you know, Japan is the least likely among all the countries in Asia to sort of hedge China or hedge the United States. And I think that they, you know, even Abe, 
in his engagement with China in the last two years, it has an element of a hedge. And I understand that Japanese will, will reject that characterization up and down. But, you know, if you look at what Abe's done with the U.S., look at what's done with China, it's sort of find the balance, right? Yeah. I mean, if it weren't for COVID, Xi Jinping would have had a state visit to Japan in April of this year. Yeah, but I completely concur with that. And I, I, I think the part that some Americans miss is, and I think part of it is the residue of our previous engagement in the Cold War with this sense that there is almost a Manichaean geographical, are you with us or against us lines on the map? And that's not how this, this long-term competition with China is gonna play out. Almost all the countries that we call our closest allies, at the same time that they want the United States with them, and they, you know, work closely on a cultural and, you know, uh, operating system basis, rule of law, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They do want a relationship with China. So all of these countries that are, in many many respects, we'd call middle powers: Japan, Australia, Great Britain, India. Uh, they, they, I think I would argue they have very few illusions about China. I think sometimes we struggle with illusions. They have very few illusions, but at the same time, they're trying to maneuver between us, between Washington and Beijing. So if you have to think a little bit like this, ironically is a gold, a golden age for middle powers. They have really a good middle power can really maneuver effectively in this environment. Whether that lasts or not, I'm not sure, though. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Kurt, because I think one of the most interesting things that's been going on in global affairs in the last month or so has been the pushback toward China of middle powers across the world. So if we talked about Australia, but you also have pushback in the UK, Boris Johnson's decision on Huawei. You, you have the pushback that yeah, Wang Yi just received on his trip to Europe, right? His, his uh, criticism by the German foreign minister, the fact that the Germans now have an Indo-Pacific strategy that has pushback against China as a component of it. The, the president of the Czech Senate shows up in Taiwan and sort of has his JFK, Ekbein Ein Berliner type of moment, mm. right? So, you know, and then, and Norway, you know, Norway sort of, you know, reminding the Chinese that they don't like to be pushed around and Sweden probably a few months ago. So, you know, your insight is spot on, Kurt. You, you not only is now the heyday of middle powers, but the middle powers are, are sort of pushing back. And I think Wang Yi was probably fairly surprised by the kind of resistance that he faced in Europe during his trip, because normally one would expect you know, during periods of transatlantic alienation, that is a strategic opportunity for Beijing, but just the opposite's occurring. So I, I want to ask a question, Evan, and just given your just broader knowledge. So, so I often talk to friends about how Asians see American domestic politics. And while most of the world, I think, is fervently rooting for an outcome that no longer has President Trump in the, at the head chair, Asia is more complex and more nuanced 
and more, you know, kind of, I think there is a substantial worry that Trump is unpredictable and the like, but I find myself in private discussion that there are more nuanced views of him and they are that some of Asia is quite pleased with the way that the president Trump and his team have put China on its back feet. And there is ambivalence in certain countries. I think it's you know impossible to imagine for our democratic friends, they, you know, here in Washington, they don't buy that. But I think you and I both know that Asia does have complex views and they are, they're not all, you know, I think traditionally some of the, the, ministries and groups that we worked with are more conservative by nature. I try to explain to them that, you know, the, the group that, that the, the modern Republican party, is not your father's Oldsmobile. It's very different than it was, but still there are, there is a legacy of attraction to some of those issues. Why is that Evan? And how do you explain it? And how do you, how do you tell people about it? It's a hard. That's a hard one, Kurt. I mean, I, I think a lot of it goes back to generational change in Asia, and you know, a, a lot of the current leaders in Asia sort of have ties to the old Republican Party and sort of classic Reaganist values. But as you pointed out, the Republican Party is not really Reaganism anymore, right? It's now Trumpism in all of its manifestations. So I think that in the conversations I have with Asian policymakers, formers that we used to work with, they're actually not just looking at the next president, but the president after that and after that. And as you know, they, you know, they have a tendency to look at the structure of the political system to determine whether or not America is going to be able to continue to generate the kind of resources and consistent behavior that is critical to America remaining a credible partner in the Asia Pacific, right? And their concern is less, you know, what Joe Biden would do if he was elected, but rather has American politics so fundamentally changed? Um, Is America so polarized as a society that it's not going to be able to generate the kind of political stability or political leaders that will allow the United States to remain such an important partner and ultimately be the kind of partner that can compete with China over the long term. Well said, Evan. Can I, can I stay on the political question for a second? Um, and, and maybe you guys were both there and 2008, 2009, and beyond. And could you just say a little bit about the evolution of the Democratic Party when it comes to China from the from your first year in the Obama administration to today? Because a, a lot of people suggest, you know, we went from this kind of uh, concept of where the U.S. and China were going to be working together to solve the world's challenges to today, you know, where there's maybe little distance between Republicans and Democrats on how serious the threat from China is. I don't accept that overly simplistic kind of characterization. What, but give us a sense just from democratic foreign policy circles, how the attitudes have changed. I mean, 
the, the way I sort of think about it, Rich, is it's important to keep in mind that it's not just that U.S. views changed or Democratic Asian specialists changed, but China changed itself, yeah. right? In other words, you know, under the Obama administration, we went from Hu Jintao to Xi Jinping, right? So there's a reason why China policy and views toward China hardened over right. time, because China's behavior changed over time. Right. It wasn't, you know, the common narrative is there are a bunch of people like Kurt that, you know, left in 2012 and then policy sort of went off course at that point. I, I think that that narrative is is a historic. I, I would say this about democratic views uh, toward Asia. N- number one, there within the Democratic Party, there were more national security generalists that recognized the importance of Asia. Right. So you sort of you had sort of the popularization of Asia, that Asia was rising, that the Democratic foreign policy establishment was no longer totally dominated by transatlanticists, though I agree with Kurt that that tradition uh, still persists. But nonetheless, there was a recognition, you know, people like Tom Donlin, you know, Jim Steinberg, of course, Secretary Clinton, you know, Leon Panetta, you know, et cetera. Those folks who recognized that the international center of gravity was shifting toward Asia, and so Asia deserved more attention, the rise of China being a big part of that. Uh, Number two, I think uh, gradually over time in the Obama administration, the traditional divide between either you're a China specialist or you're like a Japan allies guy, I think that sort of fused together, that there was no longer that sort of divide, and that you could carry those two views simultaneously, that you could want a constructive relationship with China at the same time that you sought to rebuild and revitalize alliances. And I think that's the real sort of majesty and perhaps the long-term legacy of the pivot. And I remember talking with Kurt about this, we had many conversations about this very, very early on, is that the pivot sort of embodied the merging of these two schools of thought and rejected that they were mutually exclusive and, you know, captured simply by the fact that the best way to engage China is to make sure that you're well postured in Asia. Kurt? Yeah, Evan makes really good points and it really helps advance my thinking about it. I I, I will say this, Rich, there's an interesting thing that I don't know if it really exists in any other relationship, but remember, you know, the the U.S.-China relationship fundamentally is about 40 years old. It was spawned in secrecy, the headiest kind of stuff, secret flights. You get to sit in big chairs with mysterious leaders leading billions of people. Tea and doilies. Yeah, you get, you talk about the, you know, the French Revolution and, you know, speculate on, on re- it's, it's very heady, sexy stuff. And it was stuff that was done 40 years ago and it has left a profound, deep mark on the conduct of our diplomacy. And so really almost everyone who has followed Kissinger and Scowcroft in some ways is looking to replicate, and I mean this respectfully, the quality of dialogue that they had with the Chinese. Rich, Kurt's being typically polite. What he really wants to say is everybody wants to be Kissinger, right? At the very top, everybody wants their Kissinger moment. 
where they sit down, have their six hour conversation with Joe and Lai, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And here's the reality. Gone, those days are gone. They're gone. And, 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 you know, the past, it used to be that the Chinese would then tell other friends, boy, that person, that person's very strategic. Right. And, Ambassador you know, Vermit, he's very, he has a very long-term right. perspective. Ambassador Verma, oh my right. goodness. Verma, there's a <laughs> name to right. watch for the right. future. That's right. And I love the stonework in the back. <laughs> and so, so I, I, <laughs> I would, I would say that, that, has a powerful appeal, Rich. It's it, it, and Evan and I have both seen it and experienced it and participated in it. Participated in it. You know, yeah. you you want to be. You know, it's a big deal. These two. But, great but so, Rich, let me let me. But can uh, I say one last thing? That's going to change, Rich. What 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 it should change, and the truth is, the next phase, really, the dominant diplomacy w- will likely be with our allies. But what we don't realize it's going to be much harder than we realize much, much harder. It's, you don't just sit down and say, yep, we've checked that box. And now let's, let's rush to sit down with Beijing. Allies have very different views. They have, they want more, more focus on trade. They want more predictability. They want more, they don't want to just be dictated to, they want to be, to be treated truly as partners. That's, that's not something that's going to be easy for the United States. I mean, so it, I think it's going to require some real maneuvering. I think we're going to have to demonstrate some humility. I think these are going to be real challenges. Sorry, Evan, you're the one. Sorry, you're the one being interviewed. I should let you go. I was just going to say the, the, you know, the other piece of this equation is that the traditional tools in the American toolkit for managing major power relations, both lessons drawn from both U.S.-Soviet interactions during the Cold War, but also, you know, the 40-year history of the U.S.-China relationship, things like the value of strategic dialogue, things like the use of crisis communications, things like negotiation of confidence-building measures, all of those tools, I I think history has proven in the U.S.-China context, are, are of diminishing value, not growing value, which is of concern to me, right? I mean, I, you know, Kurt and I have spent a lot of time in strategic dialogues with the Chinese, but the reality is, is, you know, under Xi Jinping, nobody really has the authority to have that kind of strategic dialogue with the United States. And so strategic dialogue becomes a way for the, or the Chinese have used it as a way to play for time and advantage to sort of manage the Americans without actually solving anything, right? Look at crisis communications. We've got a, you know, hotlines to the White House, hotlines to the DOD. Tell me what crisis in the U.S.-China relationship have these hotlines been useful because of the collective nature of the decision-making system? Hint, not many. And Richard, uh, Rich, one of the things, like, we help set up the, uh, these mechanisms to talk crisis, you know, the military maritime agreement. When, when the Chips were down, for instance, during the EP3 crisis in 2001. We would just call and it would just ring and ring and ring and ring and there would be very little response. And so I think what Evan describes, you know, these mechanisms are only valuable if the other side is prepared to sit down and talk. And for a variety of reasons, they, they, they have not been. So I think the next little while is likely to be very challenging, very tough. And 
I mean, yeah. the analogy that, that I use is it, it, we may be entering a period that's a little bit like the 1950s during the Cold War. And I don't mean to say that dramatically, but in other words, we're in the early phase of a increasingly militarized strategic competition with obvious flashpoints. Neither side's really sort of has, I think, has deeply internalized the costs and risks. Of course, the U.S. has more experience than China does. And both sides may be tempted to sort of press and probe the boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. I know we're, um, I know we're running short on time. And I, I had two questions, which could probably take an hour each. But uh, if you don't mind, I just want to ask you about the, the trade kind of deal or the trade war. And, and two dramatically different narratives coming out of this. Again, we're in a highly politicized, you know, atmosphere, but, you know, the White House view is we took on China and won, you know, and they, you know, they, they capitulated to all our demands. The alternative view to that is there's been no change in behavior. Farmers and U.S. consumers have paid higher tariffs and higher costs on everything. And, and so... Again, I think if you're an outsider and you're not studying the detail, hard to know. Uh, that was the first question I had, really, for, for both of you. Second question, probably really difficult question. It's about, you know, Chinese domestic affairs and just back to how, you know, we think the, the Chinese president is really kind of can, it, is got stable, secure control over the population. But if you were to poll the Chinese people. You know, I think about right direction, wrong direction polls in the United States. I think about, you know, our polls on, you know, happiness with the president or the Congress. You get a sense of where the American people are. I mean, do we have any sense of where the Chinese people are on the direction that the country is going? And, or is that just such a hard question given that there's not an open society in which to ask such a question. So two very different questions, one on trade and, and one on internal uh, Chinese sen sentiments. Why don't you take the trade one, Evan? I got a view on this last one. You go sure. ahead. So on the trade piece, I, I, I think if you look at it in terms of just empirical data rich, it's the second explanation that's the more accurate one, right? There's this great uh, website that the Peterson Institute for International Economics runs where they sort of do a rack and stack. And the reality is, is that the trade war cost the American consumer a lot. I think it, it, it certainly cost the American farmer a lot and will continue to cost the American farmer because I think one of the long-term you know, problems with the trade deal is that it's put Chinese purchases of American agricultural goods into a political context. So demand from China for American farmers has moved from being a constant to a variable. We have politicized that in a way that I think really screws our farmers over for the long term. Really good point. And more importantly, we didn't really get very much from the Chinese, right? I mean, they basically, any, any commitments they gave us related to things like IP protection, they had already promised to do months before. So I, I don't think there's really much basis for, you know, saying the administration took on China and won because we didn't get very much and the costs were really high. And, you know, here's the unfortunate thing. If you go back, to August of 2017, I think, when the original 301 report was drafted by USTR, it actually looked pretty good, right? They had identified a series of problems, structural problems with the Chinese economy that they sought to fix. 
The problem is, is that Trump decided to use tariffs to do so. Yeah. Thank you. Excellent answer. Thanks. And Rich, I would just say on the question of, you know, where are the Chinese people? It is, it is the, the biggest and the hardest question. There are occasional polling done a little bit, you know, on what are the attitudes on President Xi's, you know, kind of lifetime position. Some of that suggests that there was some ambivalence in China. My sense is if you talk to Evan and I, we interact primarily with the cosmopolitan elite, those who have benefited enormously from engagement, from education in the United States, operate and, and know the world. I think most of them are worried and anxious. There's a small careerist group that gets on board and probably with a high degree of enthusiasm. I, I, you see that in any society, but I think most of these folks are worried. The vast rank and file, I think nationalism is pretty virulent tool in China. And my sense is many Chinese people would say our time is coming and we're not going to be treated poorly anymore. And I think she plays that card and understands those sentiments intimately and, and exploits them very effectively. So that's where I would be. But frankly, I have no real empirical way to measure that fundamentally. And you could also argue that at the first signs of, you know, economic malaise and the global consequences of the pandemic, we'll see Chinese, you know, standards and, and capacity decline rather than rise and that he will lose that support. I'm not so sure, but that's where I would be. Evan, you get the last word and then we'll call it quits for today. Sure. Well, my last word is going to be a question for Rich. We haven't talked about India. Rich, can you tell us how, how significant and enduring is, you know, this sort of recent conflict between China and India going to be? Is India finally going to become so concerned about China that it becomes sort of a real partner in this effort, in this sort of international effort? to sort of shape Chinese behavior? Yeah. I, so great question, Evan. You know, Kurt mentioned the U.S.-China relationship being about 40 years old. I look at the U.S.-India relationship and I really think it's about 20 years old. And you, you can track that 20 years with the rise of a more assertive and aggressive China as well. And so we've had positive forces bring us together, U.S. and India, shared values, trade, people-to-people -people ties, and we've had negative forces. And one of those negative forces is a concern about aggressive Chinese uh, behavior in all, in all domains, no question about it. And from President Clinton to Bush to Obama to the current day, India has played a greater role. You know, I think about you know, the joint strategic vision for the Asia-Pacific that President Obama rolled out, which is now morphed into the free and open Indo-Pacific, which now has the Quad as a big part of it, both as a political tool and as a military tool. India is going to be the key player in this going forward. And I would say they've, they've had Chinese as their chief strategic concern for decades. So, and the recent Border issues are quite disturbing and quite unprecedented. We haven't seen activity like this since the early 1960s. 
and you guys are both historians, what I would say about our posture in 1962 was that it was a lot more certain and a lot more definitive. We People forget we provided thousands of tons of ammunition. We provided intelligence. We provided uh, logistics and overflight support to the Indians as Chinese troops were coming across the, the border. Our position, the U.S. position, is a lot more uncertain today. But the situation along the border is, is dangerous. But I will say, you know, the positive element is that the Chinese and the Indians talk to each other. And I do think there are significant dis- Strategic dialogue, right? Yeah, I, I, but at all levels, the military talks to each other, the political leaders talk to each other. And I think there are disincentives for broader conflict, but the stakes are high and things are quite tense right now. You know, Evan, that rich Verma is very able. <laughs> <laughs> so, Evan. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you, today. Kurt. Thank you, Rich. We really great appreciate to, great it. Great to be with and, you guys. Uh, we're going to have you back again because there's so much more to talk about. Rich, uh, Evan, that was that was terrific. It's always great to to have you on. Yeah. And uh, thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can access the full video of this recorded conversation with Evan online on our website at theasiagroup.com. So stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.